Well, let's enjoy God's word together as part of our worship this morning, church family. If you'll take your Bible that you brought with you, turn with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Chapter 3 is where we're going to be uh, this morning, at least for a good part of our time. If you need a Bible today, raise your hand. Bob can put one in your hands, and uh, we keep some in the back just for that purpose. There is a little note page in your bulletin that you would want to pull out also. That would be of some help to you along the way. And and church family, are you continuing to pray with me faithfully for one anotherism to invade the life of IBC in new and powerful ways? Have you been praying that with me since we started this one another series? Everybody should say, yes, I, I have been diligently praying, Pastor Tim. Great. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you see, when you and I pray for one anotherism, we are, in effect, praying for our church and praying for the relationships that we have with each other in this place or, or wherever you call home if you're just visiting us maybe for the, for the summer or, or even for a day. If you flip that little study page uh, over onto the back side, you'll see listed some 40 different one another's that are to mark our relationships inside and outside, but mostly inside of our church family here. One another's that draw us closer together, that knit us together relationally and spiritually and, and on a very practical level uh, so that we can experience life at IBC, loving God together, investing in each other, finding places to serve and enlarging God's kingdom, glorifying him and being attractive to people who don't know our Savior yet. This is where all of this is going. This is one anotherism. If you've not heard that term before, it refers to a way of thinking and living that is built around words like we and us and ours rather than words like I or me or mine. We're other-centered. It's us-focused thinking, not me-focused, not I, but we. If you just look down that list and imagine what being part of a faith community that consisted of these 40 things actually happening consistently, man, what would that be like? It'd be an awesome church, wouldn't it, to be a part of? And that's why we want to pray for this, so that this is who we are. I want to be part of a church like this. This is, this is one anotherism, these 40 things that you see listed there. We want to be pursuing that, cultivating that, encouraging that, growing that culture of one anotherism here as the Spirit of God enables us to do it. We can't manufacture this. It's got to be a God thing. Agreed? Absolutely. Now, so far um, in this series, we've sought to unpack nine of these one anothers together, and the ones that we've already taken a look at are highlighted there on your page, plus the two that we're going to look at today. If you flip that note page back to the front, today you'll see that The Holy Spirit is inviting us to discover more about what it means for us to to teach and to admonish one another. Those are the two that we're taking on this morning. And there are two places in the New Testament where these one another's are boldly declared to us, although the call to teach and to admonish uh, each other shows up literally dozens of times all over the New Testament. Uh, but, but not with the words one another attached. These two places, we have the words one another connected to the words teaching and admonish. And so they become our, our centerpiece. The first one, your Bible is open to, Colossians 3, verse 16. Paul is writing a church family in the first century, and he says, 
to them there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you what? Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. We've just been doing the last part of that verse in a very cool way. The other place where this one another is found is in Romans 15, 14. There Paul writes to that church family and he says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge. That would be knowledge of God's word. And you are able also to what? Admonish one another. And church family today, um, we're going we're gonna to go into a place that is not real comfortable for us. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask you to, to help us to see, open our hearts and our minds to be able to grasp and understand your word. We want to not be hearers of it only, as Clint mentioned. We want to be doers of it. We want to understand better what it means to teach and to admonish one another. And all God's people said, amen and amen. One of the special features of our faith as Christians is that it calls us to be responsible for each other. Would you agree with that? We are responsible for each other. Those 40 statements there on your note page scream that particular truth. Within our faith community, that is within the church family that we call home, for us it's it's IBC or, or wherever home is for you, each of us has some measure of responsibility for the welfare, physical, emotional, uh, relational, and especially the spiritual welfare of every other person in our church family. You are responsible for them. I am responsible for them. You are responsible for me. We who call IBC home are in Scripture likened to a physical body. If you were with us last time, you were looking at that out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And and the the church is likened to a body which has all of these parts and every part looks out for every other part so that as, as, as a body works effectively when every part is working. So when we are watching out for and caring for and responsible for each other, then the church itself works much more effectively as well. And and really that's what loving one another is all about. That's what one anotherism is all about, being responsible for each other in very tangible, practical ways. Out of love for Jesus and all that he has done for me, I desire to take you into my heart and care for you and love you and you do the same for me. One anotherism. Now, like almost anything else, this can be taken to an unhealthy place, but there's no question that from the two verses we're looking at this morning, Colossians 3 and from Romans 15, the Holy Spirit intends for us, brothers and sisters, you and me, to take responsibility for each other in this church family to see that we are receiving spiritual instruction counsel, direction and guidance that we're being taught as well as receiving cautions, warnings, words of protection as well. Admonition. In short, we are responsible to teach and to admonish one another. Not just some of us doing that, but all of us doing that. These these two verses are for every one of us. Are we good to go with that thought? 
Okay. Now, maybe I should speak to this just a little bit more, especially as it relates to this thought of admonishing one another. For some among us, there will no doubt be some reservation. In fact, for most of us in this room, if not all of us, there will be some reservation, some hesitancy, some, some pulling back from this admonish one another instruction. For those of us who have had the concept of mind your own business drilled into you from perhaps being a small child, you might have struggled with this thought of admonishing someone else. That might feel very uncomfortable for you. And if we aren't raised with that instruction of mind your own business, we may have gravitated to it all the same because we've discovered, quite frankly, that it's, well, it's safer. It's safer to mind your own business, right? It's less risky when you move through relationships to not rock anybody else's boat, just kind of kind of live and let live. I'm not going to mess with you. You don't mess with me. Uh, we'll leave all that to somebody else. It's somebody else's job to admonish. In fact, some will even bring scripture to their defense and point out that Jesus himself said, do not judge or what? You too will be judged, right? So we pull out that verse in defense of, well, I'm not going to get into that with that person. This injunction is frequently but mistakenly taken as a, as a, a license not to involve ourselves in other people's business, especially their less than God-honoring business especially their less-than-Jesus-reflecting attitudes or behavior. But taken in its fuller context, Jesus is not saying in that verse, do not look out for the spiritual welfare of your brother or sister. What he's saying is make sure your life is in such a place that you can look out for the spiritual welfare of your brother or sister. Right? That's the idea. Make sure that you have judged yourself correctly so that you can speak into other people's lives. That's the truth. Admonishing an erring brother or sister for their good is totally right, and it is laid on each one of us in this room. If we understand these one another's rightly and do them, we will see that offering each other biblically grounded guidance and instruction and counsel, which is what teaching is, and offering each other biblically grounded cautions and warnings and perhaps something even stronger sometimes, which is what admonishing is, we will, by acting lovingly and responsibly toward each other in our relationships, we'll bring great glory to the Lord. We will do well for that person that we are involved with, and Jesus' church will become a stronger place, more reflecting his character. We want to go there. We need to go here, brothers and sisters. So let's, let's take up these two one another's, first by taking a closer look at Colossians 3, 16. Now, we're mindful that this verse, like all other verses, doesn't just hang out in space all by itself. And we make a real effort to, to not just grab a verse and yank it out of its context and make it say what we want it to say. So Paul is writing this church family, and in this particular section of Colossians, Paul says, um, the Holy Spirit says, really through Paul's pen, that when you and I put our faith in the Lord Jesus, whenever that happened in your life, whether as a child or a young adult or maybe just very recently, when you made Jesus your Savior and your Master, whenever that happened, you, verse 10 says, put off the old self, the old sin self, 
And you, you put on a new man. You put on a new person, the new self, that over time is going to reflect more and more of the character of Jesus. And because that's true, Paul says this in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people who have done this, who have believed in the Lord Jesus, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Clothe yourself with Jesus' character, Paul says. Verse 13, bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And if you were with us early on in the series, you know that we've already taken up these two one another's of of bear with and forgive each other. Over all these, verse 14, over all these virtues, put on what? Love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. As we've been saying from the very, very beginning, one anotherism is rooted in what? Love. Love for God, love for each other. Loving one another, practically, sacrificially, like Jesus loves us. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. And then comes our verse, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is the word of Christ, brothers and sisters? What is that? What is it? You can answer. This is a question that I, you, you can talk with me. What is the word of Christ? It's the scriptures, isn't it? It's, 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 it's the Bible. Yes, sure. It refers to the supernatural, God-originating revelation that Jesus brings into the world by his own spirit, by the Holy Spirit in the form of the book that you and I hold in our lap, the Old and the New Testament. This is the, the word of Jesus. It's inerrant, it's complete, and it's the only manual that you and I need, really need, to, to live a life that is marked by faith and brings glory to God. Do we need another book? No, we got the book. We got the manual. And the Holy Spirit says, let the word of Christ, let that scripture that you're holding in your lap right now, that word from God, let it do what? Dwell in you. The word dwell is translated from a, a little Greek word, enoikeo. It means to live in or to be at home in. And Paul is saying, let the word of Jesus take up residence in your life like, like, like you take up residence in your house. Let it be, let your life be the home that the word of God lives in. Let the word of God be so at home in your life that it feels very comfortable there. It's at home with you. It's at home in you. God's word doesn't feel like a, an unexpected, uninvited guest at home with, with house slippers on, kicking back in the recliner. That's how the word of God feels in your life. At home. Let the word of Jesus be at home in you. How? Richly. Richly. It comes from the little Greek word plusios, and, and it can be translated abundantly or extravagantly rich. This is the kind of rich where even the bathroom fixtures in the house are made out of solid gold. That, that kind of rich, right? Okay? Everywhere you look, there's richness 
And the idea Paul has in mind here is that, that the truth of Scripture permeates every aspect of your life, governs every thought, every word, every action. You look into any area of your life and you will see the Word of God influencing what you do, what you say, what you choose, how you walk, how you live, how you think. Put you, you know, touch you and you, you kind of ooze out word, the word of Jesus. Okay? That's, that's the idea. Someone has said that this happens. The, the word dwells in us richly when we hear it with understanding and we handle it with our minds and we hide it in our, our memories and we hold on to it with all of our heart. Those four things that you see there on your note page with attached references. Though less alliterated, I will say the word of God dwells in you richly when, when we make time, brothers and sisters, we make time often, regularly, consistently to sit at the feet of Jesus with his word like Mary does in Luke chapter 10. Remember that scene where she chooses to sit at Jesus' feet and all she wants to do is listen to Jesus and take him in. That's how the word dwells richly in you and me through that unhurried, unrushed time where we read and we study and we ponder and we turn over and we, we talk with our friends and we memorize and hide God's word in our heart. And, and someone has said the word in the heart and mind is the handle by which the Spirit of God turns the will toward God. The word in your life is the handle that the Spirit uses to turn you Godward. I love that thought. That's true, isn't it? That's the truth. Let the words of Jesus be at home in you extravagantly as you wisely apply them to all of life. That word wisdom in verse 16. It's a word we find often in Scripture. While there are different kinds of wisdom, when the Bible uses this word wisdom, as it does here, it means having such a, uh, such a command and such a handle on the Scriptures because we've spent time with it and we're comfortable with it and it's living in us richly. Then, then, then when the issues of life come up, we have a response. We can take God's word and we can accurately and correctly and practically apply it to the issues of life. That's wisdom. And, you know, we can ask for this, can't we? Can we not ask for this? Right, James chapter 1, verse 5. We're invited to ask God for what? For wisdom so that we can know how to apply his word correctly in our own lives and in the lives of other people. So let the words of Jesus be at home in you extravagantly with wisdom. Now it goes without saying that the personal benefits of doing all of that are great. Huge payoff for you and me when we're doing that. But as beneficial as all of this might be for us personally up to this moment, in terms of leading and living a God-honoring life, as we've been saying from the very start, all of this business is not about us, is it? It's not about us. We cultivate the word of Jesus in us, inviting it to be at home in us, overflowing extravagantly out of us, joined to wisdom so that it can be practically applied. We do all of that so that we can do what? Keep it to ourselves. No, so that we can say it. So that we can teach and admonish one another, right? That's what this is all about. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. The word translated teacher is really straightforward. Nothing hard about it. It means to give instruction, to impart information, to offer counsel, to give guidance or direction that is rooted in the word, that has its authority in the word. We find this word teach absolutely in every arena of our lives. There are people who are today teaching business and science and philosophy and art and medicine and technology and law. They are teachers. They do it as their life vocation. As parents, we are teachers, aren't we? We teach our children perhaps how to cook or how to fish or, or how to manage their money. An instructor may teach you how to play a guitar or a coach may teach you how to, to shoot a jump shot. There's teaching that goes on all over the place. But here the Holy Spirit uses this word, teach, to refer to Christians who teach one another what? The words of Jesus, right? The Holy Scriptures. His word. So that the end result will be spiritual development, spiritual growth in the lives of, of all of us. We might teach one another how to study the Bible, how to pray. We might be taught by someone how to share our faith. I don't know how to share Jesus with another person like you do. Could you teach me that? You may teach or be taught principles of how to overcome temptation. How do, I, how do I find that way of escape when it's there? How do I see it when God brings that to me so that I don't fall into temptation? We're taught that. Here on Sunday mornings, we're all about being taught right now by the Holy Spirit how to cultivate the atmosphere of one anotherism, how to grow God-honoring relationships in a church family. The list of possibilities for where this kind of teaching will show up is, is just endless. Often this teaching is informal. It's one-on-one -on -one at the coffee shop, perhaps over the fence, or, or maybe at a meal that you have at someone else's home, and you teach one another. It may simply pass from one person to another uh, through a Bible study. I don't know. Sunday school class, small children. Right now there's teaching going on. Even as we're worshiping, our little ones are being taught. Again, in this passage, there's only one prerequisite for this teaching to be taking place. The one who is teaching must first have the word of Christ where? Dwelling richly here. What we teach is what we've gained through immersion in the words of Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Many of you have memorized this, these two verses. Can we read them off the screen together? Let's do that. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. On your note page, Paul highlights four ways that the word of God is useful. What are they? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. For teaching what's right. For what's rebuking what's wrong. For correcting when things go wrong. And for training how to do it all right. And verse 17 says, always with the goal of growing one another up into Jesus. So that we're more accurate reflections of him, right? Equipped for every good work. That's what that 
really means. There is a place for passing on something learned from our personal experience, but the real basis for our teaching must be, always must be, the God-breathed, God-authored scriptures. Amen? Because therein lies our authority. That's what endures. That's what lasts. That's what changes lives. It's not my personal experiences. It's the unchanging word of God. None of us are going to be prepared to teach one another by filling ourselves up with the latest pop psychology that we watch on TV midweek afternoon, right? That's not going to change lives. Not some self-help perspective that comes from a popular magazine. Lives are changed when we teach what? The Word of God. Idlewild Bible Well, we'll be prepared to teach others by first being the home where the word of Jesus lives comfortably. We may never be recognized as a teacher formally, but every one of us, again, are called to be what? Teachers of one another. That's what this verse says. All of this then brings us to this second one another, the one that maybe we're not all that excited about. (laughs) Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. Oh, if it only didn't have that little part in there. As I've reflected, brothers and sisters, on that list of 40 one another's that you have on the back of that note page, it's my suspicion that this is perhaps the one that may be the most neglected of all 40. even within a church family that is highly committed, highly motivated to one another relationships. The reason is because of what I just mentioned a little bit ago, an almost paralyzing fear that most of us have of confrontation, a determination not to judge others or to get into other people's business, a desire to play it safe in our relationships because we don't want to have fallout or or some kind of a strained relationship with a friend. And so we adopt this, it's none of my business what you're doing, kind of a thought. We don't want to risk. But church family, as we look at the New Testament, and as we look at these two passages and and many more, there simply is not a place in Jesus' church for a live and let live perspective. Would you agree with that? It's just not there. Not as we do this thing called the body of Christ where we're looking out for one another. There are times when out of obedience to Jesus and out of a love for each other, we must summon the courage and the resolve to admonish one another for for the spiritual good of that brother or sister, the spiritual welfare of that person. We must love them enough to risk stepping into this place of admonishing. But, oh, we don't like to go. The word we translate admonish in our Bibles here is from a Greek word. The word is nuthateo. Literally, it means to place on one's mind, to get someone to think about something. We place something on their mind. That was the original use of the word. In time, the word came to be associated with giving cautionary advice, offering counsel against something that was not good or right. And then it came to include the idea of reproving, 
or even scolding someone's actions or behavior when they, when they were going in the wrong direction. Always, though, with the good goal of calling that person to higher ground, to a higher duty, to a better course, to a better choice. Always with that goal. Admonition seeks to correct those who are damaging themselves and possibly other persons by their choices. While teaching could be said to stress what is positive, truth, admonishment seeks to address the things that are negative and not good in someone's Christian walk. The person that we address may not even know that they're doing something wrong. But they may well know. They just don't want to do the right. To put it succinctly, brothers and sisters, biblical admonition is spiritual correction, ideally through face-to-face verbal communication, motivated by genuine love for the person we're admonishing. But oh, how we want to avoid that. One day a man was seated at a table in an upscale restaurant, and the man takes the napkin off the table, and he proceeds to tie it around his neck like a big bib in this very posh restaurant. And the the maitre (laughs) d' of this place uh, pulls the waiter who's serving him aside and says, you must speak to this man. He needs to understand as tactfully as possible that that's not what you do. You don't wear that kind of a napkin here in this place. The maitre d' of course, wants confrontation to take place. He just doesn't want to be the one doing it, right? He puts this waiter in a pretty tight spot. The waiter thinks carefully for a moment. Then he approaches the napkin-clad man, and he says, shave or haircut? (laughs) And the man quickly untied the napkin and said, neither, thank you. Oh, if only our corrections and our admonitions could go like that, right? Admonition is admittedly risky. We don't like to be seen as a bad guy or or perhaps as someone who would be considered self-righteous. We don't want to be the Bible police, right? We don't want to risk damaging a relationship by possibly hurting or angering our friends. We worry that the person that we're confronting may really not take this well and want nothing more to do with us. We don't want to risk that. But even so, in the face of our dislike for such things, the Holy Spirit says to us plainly, here, brothers and sisters, that admonishing one another is necessary and it is right and it's what loving one another looks like. And you know what? Ultimately, if you stop and think about this, there are few greater indicators of our love for someone else than our willingness to risk their rejection, even a broken relationship, because we confronted them for their good. Do you agree with that? Love demands that we not knowingly let a brother or sister wander from the Lord. Right? Love demands that we hold each other accountable to God's truth and and, and the truth about ourselves as sinners. I mean, we're all in this place where we need to be admonished from time to time, right? Like that old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Because that is true, we will all need to admonish and we will all what? (laughs) Be admonished 
from time to time. It's just, it's just the way it is. But if our admonishing of one another is done from the right kind of heart, with the right motive, being attentive to how we do this, the person receiving the admonishment will know that they're loved. They'll know. And that is always the goal. They're good. A stronger, maybe even a closer relationship can be the outcome of loving well through admonishment. We might actually strengthen the bonds of a friendship because we love our friend enough to admonish. There's some upside here for us. And I'm sure that you can see, as I can see, that real, authentic Christian community in a church family cannot just be always acceptance, encouragement, affirmation, kind words, lots of hearty way to goes, way to go, way to go. Hopefully there's plenty of that in a healthy church family. But there has to be a place for admonishing. Agreed? Because we're all sinners and we don't always do it right. That was certainly Paul's thinking in this second passage, Romans 15, 14. Since that has not been in our sights, let's take a closer look for a moment. Paul writes to this church family and he says, Concerning you, brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, you're filled with all knowledge, and you are able also to what? Admonish one another. Here the Holy Spirit lets us know that there are two essential things for effective and helpful admonishing to take place. First, anyone who admonishes must be characterized by what? By goodness. Paul is addressing motive here in our admonishing, which is our love for each other, full of goodness, full of godly love. And he would also be speaking to the overall direction of our spiritual life. Is it a, are we walking in goodness? It's pretty hard to have any credibility with somebody if you're admonishing, for the same, admonishing them for the same thing that you're doing, right? So there needs to be goodness. You need to be, you need to be walking uprightly. Now, obviously, none of us are perfect, but... but We have taken the speck out of our own eye, Jesus would say, before we think about removing the speck from a brother's eye, right? Or a sister's eye. Second, we must have a good grasp of God's word. With all knowledge, Paul says. We've been talking about that, so we won't spend any more time on it. The word dwelling in us richly, having a knowledge of God's word, the wisdom to apply it appropriately, if that's not happening, if, if, if there's not goodness and if there's not the word in my life, then I'm not the one to be doing the admonishing. I'm probably the one who needs to be what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So what does biblical admonishing look like? What does it look like? Man, thanks for asking that question. I was hoping that you would ask that question. Truthfully, we can never reduce admonishment to a formula. It just isn't going to happen because there's just too many variables But there are some principles that will help us to be prepared to admonish a brother or a sister well. First, we'd want to prayerfully prepare for that moment, wouldn't we? We start anything that moves in an admonishing direction by bathing it in prayer. Prayer for ourselves, prayer for our brother or sister. We need God's wisdom. We need God's strength. And and we should never engage in any spiritual activity, but certainly not admonishing without bathing that in prayer first. This will prevent us from reacting impulsively, saying things that we shouldn't have said, acting on emotion rather than on careful thought. It will force us to take a deep breath. We're going to pause. We're going to pray. 
It practically goes without, it practically goes without saying that admonition should be done with, with pure motives and a proper goal, and we push all of that through the grid of prayer. Near the bottom of your page, your little note page, Colossians 1.28, Paul says this, same book that we were in a moment ago. Jesus is the one we proclaim. What's the next word? Admonishing and teaching everyone, everyone with all wisdom, with the wisdom found in God's word, so that we may what? Present everyone fully mature in Christ. When I go to the Lord in prayer and I ask him to help me with, a, with an admonishing moment in a, in a friend's life, man, in that moment, I've got to push my motive through the grid. What is this all about? Is it about me? Or is it about my friend? Knowing Jesus better, living more consistently the word of God so that we may present everyone fully mature in Jesus. That's why we pray first. Second, when we do admonish, we make sure that we do it in private and we do it face to face, if at all possible. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Privacy is huge. That shows respect for our brother, for our sister. It reduces their need to be defensive in front of us. And it needs to be face-to-face because so much of communication, as you well know, is nonverbal. Very little of it is our words, right? Most of it is our facial expressions, our body language, the tone of voice with which we speak. Our friend needs to hear and see all of that as they're being admonished. Telephone calls, emails, those are poor ways to admonish. I would highly discourage that if we want the best outcome. Third, brothers and sisters, we we ground our admonition in God's word because that's our authority, right? That's where our authority lies. It's not about my opinion about your behavior. It's about what God's word says. It's not about, about, about you giving me your opinions about how I'm doing my Christian life. You come to me with God's word because that's where the authority is. If you're going to admonish me, Use God's word. Hebrews 4.12, couldn't say it any more powerfully than this. Up on the screen, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And what does it do? It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We ground our admonition in the word of God because it has the authority. It deals with facts. It deals with the truth. No subjective feelings. It penetrates and it convicts and it changes a person's heart like nothing else. So we let the word of God be our authority. Fourth, when we admonish, we seek to be only as strong and forcible as necessary, never over the top for drama or for some kind of effort to try to persuade. Galatians 6.1 comes to mind. Paul says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should what? Restore him gently. We could replace the word restore with the word admonish, couldn't we? Admonish him gently. We're all sinners. And we should seek to treat a struggling brother or sister exactly the way we want to be treated if the roles were reversed. And lastly, we don't look immediately for the good fruit to come from our admonishing effort. We don't look for instant results. 
We give our friend, our brother, our sister time to reflect, time for God by his spirit and by his word to do the convicting. We can all relate to the initial bristling of our egos and the wounding of our pride when someone has confronted us, right? That rarely feels good. That hurts. It's, it's pointed and admonishing usually stings the one being admonished. So we need to take that into account. If there's not an immediate receptivity to our admonition, then we back off. We create some space and we some, say something like, you know, why don't we just take a rest? Let's, let's, let's just take some time. We'll think about this and pray about this and we'll take up the conversation again later. That's loving. Well, now obviously, we can do all of those things to the very best that they've ever been done in the history of the world, right? And still our relationship with a brother or a sister can be damaged or even ended because of our admonition effort. True? Do we admonish anyway? Do we admonish anyway? Yes. Why? Why? Because the word of God tells us that we're supposed to do that, but because we love our brother or sister, right? We love them enough to do that. We risk the relationship because it's the right thing to do. Because we love them. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. This is so powerful. Better is open rebuke than what? Hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Is it worth it to admonish one another in the way that we've been speaking of, even when everything within us would rather not do that? Is it worth it? Thank you. (laughs) Really, brothers and sisters, the answer to that question depends on what we value the most. If our highest priority is our own comfort then let's not admonish one another. But if we value God's word and and the spiritual welfare of others in our church family, and if we value healthy relationships with others, and if we value love for a brother or sister more than whether they like us or not in a moment, then it's worth it to risk for their sake, the relationship. It's what love does. It's what love does. Let me end with this. Ulysses S. Grant, do you know the name? Sure you do. Four-star general in command of the Union forces during the Civil War. He would go on to become the 18th president of the United States, as you know, and he'd find his way onto one one of our bills. John A. Rollins. That's probably not a name you know. He was Grant's friend. He was a fellow general. And he, he went on to become Grant's chief of staff during the war. Grant had a serious drinking problem, if you know his life story at all. No one was closer to Grant than Rollins was. But he had this serious drinking problem. As the war was unfolding, Grant pledged to Rollins that he would abstain from drinking for the duration of the war so that he could carry out his duties and make clear decisions. On one occasion, Grant broke his promise. 
Rollins confronted him, pleaded with him, reminded him of his promise. And with great earnestness, he said to Grant, for your sake and for the sake of this nation, you must stop. Grant bristled at this confrontation. But he did take Rollins' admonition to heart. He went on to lead the Union forces to victory, as you know. His decisions were clear. They were decisive. They were unimpaired by alcohol. The nation that we enjoy today in large measure can trace itself back perhaps to this moment when Rollins confronted Grant and called him to a higher walk, a higher place. There stands today in front of the Capitol in Washington a magnificent monument to General Grant. He sits upon his horse in characteristic pose and he's flanked on either side by stirring battle scenes of the Civil War. At the other end of the mall in Washington and a little to the south of Pennsylvania Avenue, there is a park. It's called Rollins Park. There in that park, there stands a very ordinary, insignificant, really, statue of Grant's friend, John Rollins. It has been observed by more than a few careful historians that there might be no monument to Grant if there had not first been a faithful friend by the name of John Rollins. It was Rollins and his admonition that kept Grant on that horse. Let's be faithful, brothers and sisters in Jesus, who love each other enough to not only teach each other, but also admonish each other. Not so that we can stay on a horse, but so that we might stay on a God-honoring life course that makes Jesus easy to see. Attractive to others who don't know him yet and makes a church family stronger. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Wow. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, you've met us in this beautiful place of your word. And you have forced us into a place that we would not choose to go, I'm guessing. The thought of teaching others, we all get caught up in that, and we're excited about that thought, and there's a place for us there. Every one of us have things that we can teach each other. But this other place of admonition, oh, how we need your help. Again, we don't want to be hearers of the word, but doers of it. Help us to love each other enough to do this well for your glory for the strengthening of your church for the advance of your cause that others might know Jesus we love you Lord but only because you loved us first and all God's people said amen and amen brothers and sisters let's stand together